The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. It's Margaret. It's the 4B Show. We um, do this every Wednesday for the most part. Um, today's topic is about building successful um, and branded communities which is a very, very important topic. Um, so building a st- strong community is a really important way to strengthen your relationships with your customers, fuel innovation because they tell you what products they want, create a competitive advantage, um, lower your cost of customer acquisition. It's just magic, um, seemingly. So we have um, three experts who are doing this, have been doing this um, to um, talk shop with. Um, so that's basically the topic. And I am very curious about the, both the building of the communities, but also the petrifying prospect where it goes sideways, um, particularly in today's climates, that, that climate that does seem to happen. Um, anyhow, let me introduce my three fabulous experts. Um, Melody McCloskey, everybody's vaccinated, as you've already heard. <laughs> Melody is the CEO of StyleSeat, a booking platform that connects stylists and um, beauty professionals with clients. I am a very happy customer, and I, I met Melody years ago, um, and I was so thrilled that this product exists. I think, um, Melody, you got started in 2011, and I think you have powered 150 million beauty appointments and generated over $6.5 billion in revenue for beauty professionals, which, um, given the pandemic, I'm particularly excited about. Um, and then you have this uh, fabulous following of your community that you've built along the way. So that's Melody. Next up, we have Camille. Camille heads up marketing at Notion, which is a productivity tool that people seem to go gaga over and have followed. She has like the product has cult like following and there's a strong community around that. And I want to hear more about this. Um, And uh, Camille is also full disclosure, friend of the firm and a friend of many of, of the folks on my team. And then last but not least, we have Eric Lamb, who's the founder of um, Aspire IQ, which is an aid agency dedicated to all of this for both big brands and startup um, brands. So um, I can't wait to hear all of your examples, whether you want to drop names or not. I'll have one item of housekeeping, which is that we are recording this conversation because we want to make it available to those who cannot be part of it live. Um, but that also means that if you want a question, which we very much encourage, want to ask a question, you agree to having your question and your name being used in the recording. And for those of you who want to sign up, we have a podcast channel called A16Z Live, where we run most of the Clubhouse conversations. And for those guys who follow the firm, they're a bunch. All right, that's the housekeeping. Let's kick it off with Eric. Eric, you have an entire company built around uh, fostering and creating branded communities. Um, so tell us, like, why is this so important since you are charging money for it and you seem to have many happy customers? Tell us why this matters and how you help your clients. Yeah, I, I think one thing to clarify is that we're actually a software platform, not an agency, which you know, in our Oops. early days was actually quite an important distinction because we were, uh, I think most most people in the space were agencies and we were kind of this like uh, struggling team trying to get anybody to pay for our software or give it away for free. So it was kind of- You broke out though, software's <laughs> magic, so good for you. Yeah, we, 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 we hustled and grind and finally made it. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of the importance of, of brand communities, really there's, there's tons of different ways to organize your brand community, which you can kind of get into. But I think at Aspire, the narrative we try to talk about is 
kind of owning your channels instead of renting them. So I think, you know, most of our customers are e-commerce brands. And I think that the, the, the new rent, so to speak, is basically like paid social and like Facebook ads. And I think, you know, obviously those rates are going up over time. It's getting more and more expensive to essentially, you know, get leads in. And I think the, the companies that we've seen be the most successful are the ones that have been able to kind of build organic, organic, or organic referral sources um, that, you know, they take time. It's a slow process. But, you know, one of the best ways to do it is like, how can you build an ambassador program? How can you build an advocate network out of it could be influencers, it could be customers, it could be experts, thought leaders, whoever, um, because the, 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 the way that people find you nowadays is on social media, it is through word of mouth, and if you can create that channel organically, that's something that can really scale over time and really kind of become a powerful pillar for growth. Yes, and I love the point about renting your channel versus going direct is something that we're big fan of. Hey, I'm going to do a slight detour and say hi to my buddy, Nate. Nate uh, is a colleague of mine at the firm. He runs our TXO fund. Uh, hey, Nate, how you doing? Hey, Margaret. How you doing? Good. Happy to um, join. Um, we, all of your um, portfolio companies will probably want to build their own community. So um, listen in, maybe ask a question, and we'll make the recording live um, of A16Z live uh, available to them as well. Oh, for sure. And we encouraged them to join as well for that exact reason. This is this is going to be an excellent session. Thanks for having us. That's cool. Thanks, Nate. All right. Um, Melody, uh, you have sort of the added opportunity and challenge. You created a two-sided platform, right? So you have, quote unquote, potential community on both sides. How did you get started um, getting the stylists signed up and the clients? And how did you use community to help you um, in your growth trajectory? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, in the beginning, as Style Seat was figuring out how we could connect consumers to beauty professionals, right? So barbers, stylists, makeup artists, et cetera, we were free um, as we were figuring out, you know, how can we be valuable to both sides of the community? And what we realized is that in order to really drive value for consumers as well as for professionals, we needed to go extremely deep on the supply side. So supporting stylists, because mm -hmm. uh, we found that they would think about us as kind of like an Instagram plus originally, where they'd upload a couple photos, you know, here's my list of services. And then they'd email us within the first hour of signing up and say, I haven't received my client yet. <laughs> um, and what we realized <laughs> is like, well, we need your schedule. You know, there's a few more steps in there. But in order to really get them to take it seriously, um, we actually had to start charging for our product, which was very scary. I can tell you um, the night before we, you know, our paywall of, you know, you have to start paying us $35 a month to use our product. I think I drank a bottle of wine <laughs> by myself in the conference room. I was like laying down on the floor, sort of staring at the ceiling, thinking, you know, we put some big numbers on the board. We have a meaningful community, et cetera, from being free. But I have no idea if our stylists are going to pay for this. Like, I could not have a company tomorrow. You know what I mean? Um, but we just had to do it. That was honestly and truly one of the most scary moments. Um, but we turned it on. We became profitable right away, which was amazing. It allowed us to take the next couple of years and just really go super deep in supporting all the different areas of their business end to end. 
which mm-hmm. means that a stylist would sign up. They would use us for, you know, website and booking and scheduling and payments and marketing and kind of all that suite of tools. And that allowed us to attract the best professionals who wanted to differentiate themselves as the best lock artist, the best colorist, the best barber, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that attracted a really high-end group of clients. And so that was important for us, number one. Number two, even though I was a skeptic at the time, live events for us, meetups were huge. Um, and it was just a way for all of the stylists to bring their stylist friends to sit in a room, to get to know us, give everyone a glass of wine, like talk about why we're here, get to know each other. Um, so I'd say that was another huge piece. And then the third piece was driving them clients and also becoming a resource for consumers and actually doing that well, which is very product-driven, data science-driven, design-driven. Um, but it was those three things. It's like building a product that was valuable combining that with community because we really care about the heart and soul of our artists and of our consumers, and then also driving the other side of the marketplace. And I think those three things really, um, you know, helped establish us and, and get us to a point of scale. It's totally fascinating because we have so many portfolio companies and and it's a, it's sort of a huge leap. Once you've started free, like to take the leap and go like, Oh, now I'm going to charge which in most cases, the right thing to do. What was the conversion? Like how many folks did you lose as a result? Yeah, you know, it was about 20% conversion, which Mm -hmm. was interesting and and kind of expected. I mean, I had no idea what it would be. And like now it's this wonderful success story because it worked. But like, I am not kidding when I say the day before we flipped the switch, I was just like, (laughs) everything could go away. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was really scary. Um, But uh, it's 20% conversion, but what's interesting is it was like 80 or 90% conversion, maybe even more of the professionals that had been engaged. So mm-hmm. of our customers that were, were truly using it and had taken it seriously as a free product, um, the you know vast majority of them converted over. And so that was, uh, that was good to see. Well, and then also you have that magical word revenue, and then you can build out product features and, and make the product more valuable, right? So that sounds I mean, great. we became profitable in the first month of flipping the switch, which is almost an unsexy word in Silicon Valley. But I can tell you that the like confidence that I got from being a real business was incredible. It's very, very thrilling um, to make a little bit of money, to know that people will pay you for the thing that you love building for them. That's awesome. All right. Um, we've had a um, new, we had a few people join. Let me welcome Andrew Chen. Andrew is one of our general partners who's made a lot of investments, including the one in Clubhouse, which is its own community. Hey, Andrew, how are you? Hey, how's it going? This is such Good. a great topic. Yeah, I know the topic, just for those who are new, the topic is how do you create branded communities to help you fuel your business? And then, if assuming you do that successfully, how do you manage them? So um, we're just getting started. Um, thanks for joining us, Andrew. I know you're pressed for time, so you can drop in and out as as you see fit. Um, we haven't heard from Camille yet. Hey, Camille, um, it's nice to see you again. I think the last time I saw you was IRL at some coffee shop or something. Um, yes. Well, it's it's been a while. Um, and congratulations on all the stuff that you've done at Notion. Notion is a completely different animal, you know, not a two-sided marketplace. What I find amazing is that, you know, Notion has fans. They'll do 
template testos, they do meetups, they create user videos to educate the community. Mm -hmm. Can you just kind of separate out like how much of that was intentional and built, how much is due to the product and, and can you even tell and how, how are you thinking about it as the head of marketing? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And Notion is a very strange creature when it comes to community. So the answer to your question is yes and no in terms of it being strategic. Honestly, when I started in uh, the very beginning of 2019, it was really just about following the action where it was happening. And we saw all of these people who were being very vocal about Notion on social media, sharing their own creations. I think that that is really the kernel of what that early community was about, was helping people express themselves uh, and share out what they had built and what was important to them. Uh, so we pulled all those people together into an ambassadors community. And honestly, what has sprung from that is a co-creation. So staying very close to the people who I would say are sort of the tent poles of this community uh, and making sure that we're constantly asking them, what's most exciting for you right now? How is this beneficial for you? I'd say that that's one of the core tenets that has made the community interestingly successful is that We've empowered a lot of these folks to build their own businesses, whether they're selling premium Notion templates or teaching courses or offering consulting. Uh, a lot of them are running their own larger communities that they've been able to monetize in some way or build their own personal platforms. So uh, I would say that we observed for the first part, and now that we are seeing people coalesce around major activity areas, figuring out how to just expand and empower them to do more and go the distance. And especially the challenge right now is to how to do that around the entire world in a bunch of different languages. And Camille, I was just going to jump on something that you just said, um, which, which I love around kind of co that term co-creation. Um, I think when, when it comes to especially products that are, are social or have collaboration, um, you know, at, at its core, um, like Notion, what ends up happening, as, as you know, is that um, not only is there the concept of product design, of like picking what mm -hmm. features actually go into the product, but, you know, there's a whole thing that that is really about like community design um, of trying to curate and figure out like who goes into the early community as well. And do you kind of get a lot of the right people then, um, you know, they, they sort of feed back and forth with each other in the sort of co-creation, um, you know, step. And so I think there's, there, there's you know, um, uh, really obviously how Notion and Slack and a lot of these products sort of started out in sort of these tech forward communities. Um, and then that sort of, you know, created the aspirational desire for a lot of other companies that to then adopt Notion and Slack and some of these like kind of cool tools, um, you know, alongside, uh, you know, like building the actual right features as well. Yeah, I would say one of the key discoveries there, I think that's a really good point, was that we wanted to pull in folks to the ambassadors community who were excited to be running communities organically outside of Notion Sphere. So that really gave us the potential to seed communities. For example, we have a Notion in Arabic community that has over 30,000 users in it. We have a Notion in Japan community that has 6,000 users in it. So it really gave us that leverage and also I think was was possible to really take advantage of the fact that people wanted to be part of communities that felt organic and authentic and not like marketing. So actually having that buffer space between us and these groups has proven to be a really great tactic. It's interesting, Camille, you brought up something that you said like you watched for a while and then you kind of basically 
went into this co-creation point, which is an excellent one. For Eric, Camille, Melody, whoever wants to take it, like, what is the right moment when you want to fuel into, like, pour fuel onto the community building part? Like, what's the what's the crossover between observing and then building? Yeah, I I can give an example at least. I think one of our favorite client examples is Glossier, which obviously is now one of the biggest names in beauty and D2C and everything like that. But, you know, obviously they started basically with a community around Emily Weiss's uh, Into the Gloss blog. And I think even around their first product launch, they what they did is they, they brought in like 30 women. They put them into like the Slack community. They brought them in the office. They had them try on products. And I think what I've heard is like those the original 30 women became such a tightly knit group. They've like been at each other's weddings and things like that. And I think, you know, for them, it, it really started like almost on day one. And I think even today, the community is thousands of people between customers, advocates, um, you know, fans, just, you know, beauty experts. And it kind of doesn't matter how famous they are. They, they engage with all of them. They kick all their feedback. I think they released this like new face wash. And, you know, when you look at all the marketing, they, they were talking about how they dug through 400 comments of people who had previewed the product. And it, it, it really provides so much more value than just, you know, word of mouth. And obviously the affiliate sales are great for, uh, you know, uh, growth and everything. But I think as you incorporate the community more holistically into your brand and your marketing experience and the customer journey as a whole, it becomes like even more powerful than just the referrals it can create. Yeah. And not to state the obvious, it sure beats doing a damn focus group, right? Like you just actually watch what people are doing, what they're responding to. It's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is a school of thought and maybe it's old fashioned, maybe it applies to certain companies, but I'd love anyone's take on it. Sort of just build a great product and they will come versus getting, you know, going all the way out like Emily did, where from day one, she's like has her potential users in the house. For us, we definitely, I mean, that's been our entire growth philosophy. I think style seed had powered, um, something like $7 billion in appointments across our platform before we then decided to hire a marketing team. <laughs> and that sounds, that sounds like a lot, but it, it, you what know, made you think you really... needed one given those numbers? <laughs> well, it, it's, you know, for us, it was about building a platform where stylists would come and run their business. And then the next phase was give our stylists marketing tools for them to build their own community and grow their own community and bring them to style seat. And then the next phase for us was aligning our business model with our community so that they um, wanted to bring everyone to style seat because we, you know, what we told them early on was every client that books on style seat versus texts you, calls you, emails you is going to spend a hundred more dollars with you um, than those other channels. And so that's the type of, you know, by powering them with that and having a platform that where that's actually true, um, they wanted to bring their communities to us, which then helped augment our own platform. And then clients would come to us and say, Hey, I got a haircut. It was amazing. I think I'm going to find my makeup artist here too. Um, Cause I really enjoyed the experience. The reason why we want to turn on a marketing team is because, you know, there's, we're doing a uh, billion dollars a year in bookings a year in, in beauty, but there's 70 billion that's spent in the space 
it's still a drop in the bucket. Um, and we have ambitions of being huge, but I definitely believe that starting with a platform that actually performs, you know, that's engineering and, and data science driven, whatever that means for you. And then aligning your interests with their community and really helping them achieve their own objectives and career goals and having that feed your own is, is just the nicest way to be able to get to scale. I'm hearing you say basically sort of focus on product market fit and then do all the other stuff around it. Um, let me just uh, sort of turn to folks, maybe Eric, you can start with this or Camille, like what, what is the actual specific advice? You know, I'm, I'm assuming folks are listening to this and that all sounds good, but like, what do I do? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that it can start small and start simple. I think the, one of the mistakes that not we made, but I think that we considered making was just starting with a tour de force of like, let's do events, let's do this community engagement, let's do email newsletter. And really it just started with bringing together the folks who were being the most vocal and also being the most engaged with helping other users. That was a big one for us is who was actively like on the subreddit or on Twitter being of service to other users bringing them into the community so that they could meet each other. And we just used a Slack interface and we still do. And honestly, it has worked great for us because people already, most people do have Slack in their day-to-day -day workflow. So they don't have to go to another destination they're not familiar with. Um, so I think starting with a very small step versus maybe building out a bigger strategy would be my first recommendation. So you basically have like people who kind of self-identify as wanting to be part of a community through signals that they're sending either on Twitter or wherever they are, and then using sort of easy, sort of low, low hurdle tools like a Slack, whatever people are already doing. It sounds like that's what I'm hearing you say. Any, that's what worked for us. Uh, yeah, that, that was really a good learning. I think for us is just to use tools people were already excited about. Uh, we actually sent out the first wave of invites to people specifically saying like, hey, we've noticed you. We think that you are going to be a great addition for these reasons. And then we promoted the fact that they were members out to the broader community and opened it up as an application process. Yeah, I would say that in a lot of the advice that we tend to give, I, I would echo Camille talking about starting small. And I would also echo, obviously, having Melody's advice around having a great product because it starts obviously with customers that already love you and, and are wanting to talk about you, wanting to advocate for you. And I think it really starts with them in terms of identifying, even if they're super small, like customers that have bought from you that are mentioning you on social um, and creating basically just like triggers and incentives and kind of ways for them to engage uh, either with the brand on social media or with each other a lot of times, typically what we see is when brands are starting out, obviously they have an existing customer base or they have you know, fans on social media and they'll create essentially a program for ambassadorship. And typically it's pretty informal to start. Uh, you might have an email address, you might have a landing page that kind of formalizes it a bit, but typically it, it, it really involves um, you know, finding people that really love the brand, they already have your product or you're willing to kind of send them uh, some free product to try out. And, you know, while it might be, you know, a little scary to just send product to people without really any guarantee of anything in return, assuming that you're picking people in the right way and obviously your product is good and, and really means something to those people, um, you'll get a lot of kind of word of mouth out of that and people just posting about you and continuing to nurture those relationships from there is really where it becomes this kind of like test and invest, like virtuous cycle 
Um, and as people, you know, create more content, as people are kind of, um, you know, potentially even doing things like affiliate sales to drive growth, you can really start to spot the patterns of like where their pockets in different either social media channels or different, uh, you know, community groups where, hey, this is where people are really engaged talking about my product or talking about kind of the, uh, you know, the action around my product. And that's where I should invest in, whether it be, you know, formalizing some of those relationships more into even things like contracts or, um, you know, like running advertising in those communities or things like that. So really, it, it starts with, again, I think like Camille was saying, starting small and at least from a B2C perspective as it relates to growth, kind of invest, finding ways to invest and like nurture those relationships either formally or informally. So I have a question here because um, I work with a lot of early stage consumer brands and this is fantastic, by the way. Um, so how do early stage companies, what are some of the things that they can do, um, Eric or Camille or, or Melody or Tina, what are some of the things they could do to identify these super fans uh, and what, what I'm asking you is just basically, what is the difference between someone who might have been delighted in the moment and the other person who may just be a complete super fan who's going to post all the time, who's going to bring community together, talk about the brand and kind of spur conversation around the brand? How do, how do, how do early stage startups really identify the difference between the two? Oh, sorry, Camille. <laughs> um... Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, I would say that, you know, a lot of this is pretty manual and at the start, because you, when you're starting with nothing, you're kind of really doing a lot of the vetting yourself. And I, I would say it just starts with looking at how they're engaging with the brand. And if they're naturally talking about it already, if they've written reviews about it, if they're t talking about it on social media, like it's often worth just, you know, engaging with them, even if it's for nothing more than, Hey, would you like to kind of you know, share this, uh, sh you know, share this with your friends, giving them a referral code, giving them some interesting promotions, all the way up to, you know, if they've been, you know, really engaged with you, kind of inviting them to in-person events and things like that. Um, it really starts small. And I think a lot of the, a lot of times, like the, the cost is less in the money that you're either sending them in terms of product or gifts or anything like that. And the cost is really more in your time. And that's where it becomes a, this kind of like manual process because, you know, these people aren't necessarily influencers, they're relatively small. Um, but I think that as you, as you do that, as you kind of like, you know, gift and seed kind of, uh, you know, goodwill out there to, and you even do like surprise and delight moments for people that are completely unexpected, um, you'll start to see a lot of people kind of like self-identify in those like really enthusiastic, uh, moments where they're just like talking about you all the time. And you can obviously track a lot of that in analytics and, you know, reinvest in, you know, the people that are really talking about you. Hey, you mentioned surprise and delight and the, the folks who are already opting in. I'd love a sense to get a sense from how do you keep the tone authentic so it doesn't so the community doesn't feel like you're being quote unquote used to for your business purposes. Like what what's the line there? This Sorry, seems like a hard question. I don't know if I, should, I, Eric, I keep talking. It's okay. For us, it has been really about focusing on when we're talking to our stylists keeping the topics around topics that are important to them, right? So not throwing an event around style seed or talking about us and how they can help us. It's always about us trying to get creative, starting dialogue, content, events, whatever that engagement looks like, um, or media channels that we're putting out there that are about supporting them, giving them resources, showcasing, you know, professionals that have done incredible things, giving them access to insights based on what we're seeing that can help them in their business. And I think always focusing on being a resource 
for our community and the same thing on the client side. Um, so that it's when they read it, they're like, Oh yeah, that's great. Oh, I didn't know that. And you know, this added value to me. Thank you. Style seed. Or like I went to this event, um, and met a bunch of members of the team, but it was actually informative. And I came away with something that's really going to help me with my own goals. Um, that's been how we've thought about it. So it sounds like making it about them and also Camille, you're, you're up next. Don't go on mute, but also seeming making it look and actually doing it more like a peer to peer event versus a top down situation. Exactly. Yeah, I would definitely echo that as well. We try to create as many events or just opportunities for the folks who belong to these communities to interface just with each other without any sort of oversight or uh, participation from somebody at Notion. And those have gone quite well. The other things that come to mind for me on this question is uh, definitely understanding their goals. For us, it's usually people are wanting to generate revenue on their own in some way or wanting to build a platform or personal brand for themselves. So we've created tools and uh, different resources that can help them along those lines. And then the third thing that's been really interesting for us is just being radically transparent with the people who belong to these groups. So making sure that they get a sneak peek at features that are coming down the line, they get to do AMAs with the people who are behind building those products. Uh, often when we're doing policy changes, uh, we will let them know in advance so that they feel like they are part of our advanced team, helping educate the rest of our broader user base on these things. And that includes when we have made mistakes or we have been humbled in some fashion. Uh, we often do sort of postmortems with the community so that they really feel like they are in, in this with us and on the journey with us. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think having them invested in all aspects of what you're doing, even the mistakes, can really kind of shield you from uh, things that happen. I, I think just to kind of go back to, to Margaret's point about making it feel authentic, I, I, I do think that the most successful programs tend to be things where you're not just posting to obviously sell a product. And, um, you know, I think a great example is actually one of me and Tina's old, old section or uh, old classmates from, from business school, uh, Trina Spear at Fig Scrubs. So they're obviously, they're making, uh, you know, scrubs for medical professionals and they've kind of built a lot of their growth. They're not a customer of ours, so I have no insider information, but they're, they've built a lot of their growth off the back of basically almost like creating this, uh, you know, social media movement of, you know, ambassadors and healthcare professionals that kind of almost turned into influencers as a result of working on this. But really, a lot of the content that they're posting has, you know, hashtag where figs in it. But a lot of the content is really around their personal story in healthcare or the stress and the burdens they feel like, you know, working, especially over this last year during COVID and things like that. Um, and, and kind of like running these types of content, content driven campaigns around like, you know, inclusivity around the healthcare community. Um, and things like that, rather than I think kind of, and I don't even actually think FIGS has like affiliate programs to drive direct referral referrals or anything like that. It really is just trying to get, send people to these scrubs and have them talk about their story um, in the context of the healthcare community, but with obviously FIGS as kind of a partner in that. It might make my next question, and everybody feel free to ask each other questions, might make my next question obsolete, but I was going to ask, like, are there kinds of companies that where it just doesn't really make sense to invest in the community? The Scrubs example makes me sense makes me think like no, every, everybody can do this. But like, 
you know, is it more important for marketplaces? Is it less important for B2C companies versus B2B companies? Like, are, are there any takers, any, any philosophies over here? I mean, my guess would be it's less critical for commodity-driven marketplaces, right? You think about the commodity-driven, whether it's food delivery or transportation. Um, I don't know if community building would be helpful <laughs> for those companies. Maybe, maybe not. This is just me throwing uh, some ideas out there versus creator-driven and, you know, marketplaces or tools or, um, you know, certainly platforms that empower communities feels like that that's a much more central uh, part of their core offering and how they grow. I could also see that, you know, very, very complicated products that just aren't influenced really by the community that much, say security. However, if you sell to developers, then it's uber, uber important. So it, it seems like broadly applicable um, as we're spitballing here. But um, if someone if someone in the audience disagrees, like chime in, we're going to get to questions in a little bit. I So this was all sort of the la-di-da happy side of it. Like community can be so great for you and it's it's awesome. How do you figure out how to manage a community? Because it's, you know, they don't work for you. They don't do as you tell them to do. You know, like how do you how do you figure out what the line is where the, the community kind of runs itself versus you have your ambassador program? Like, how, how do you think about that? One thing that's been big for us is understanding how engagement is working within the community. So who is in there actively participating all of the time? Uh, what do they want to do? So we often do conversations with most of the members in this community. Uh, I work with two incredible colleagues, Ben Lang and Francisco Mendoza, who are both um, full-time dedicated to really understanding the sentiment within the community, what people want to be doing, what they wish was different, uh, and we're able to upgrade and sort of roll out processes in response to a lot of those conversations. So just staying really close to the people involved. Yeah, I, I would say that um, from my angle, obviously I deal with mostly consumer brands, and I, I would say that not not the majority of them necessarily have, I would say, kind of a top-down driven community space where, you know, they're kind of, uh, you know, like a first party officiant of a community. A lot of times, obviously, uh, the communities kind of spawn or kind of come up organically. And obviously, they have their own kind of moderation, uh, you know, people that are running them. But for the most part, I think brands tend to, I, I would say, maybe endorse some of those communities, but not necessarily take a, uh, an active leadership role of them. I think for two reasons. Number one, it, you know, it keeps that community really organic and the discussion there very authentic between the members who are kind of all going through that shared experience. And I think number two, um, probably at some level to shield themselves from um, you know, having to you know, take on some of that liability if if things happen that are kind of adverse effect to the to, to the brand. Um, so while while there are definitely some of those spaces, like I think uh, there's like a huge like discussion forum for communities like Sephora and things like that. Um, you know, I, I would say it's not always the, the case where the brand is 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 trying is trying to do that. And it, a lot of times, the, the the brand community tends to be like this relationship that a lot of these consumer brands have with individuals in like an ambassador program or something like that. Okay, so let me put it a bit more with a bit more spice. Like, what if the community turns into an angry mob and the anger is directed at you? And it could be over um, a statement you made that or you didn't make, as as far as a political topic is concerned. Something that 
happens at your company that's sort of tough, I don't know, somebody gets fired and complains or sues, like how, how do you deal with that? I think you have to decide what you want to stand for. And that has to be a very, very look in the mirror, authentic decision that is thoughtful and deliberate because things will happen that you didn't intend to happen. And you have to be able to face your community or the people involved and own up to it and be honest and come forward with an authentic reaction, which is, you know, we did or did not intend for this to happen and it did. And so here's what we're doing next. Um, Here's how we're changing or whatever. Or if you're talking about a political statement, making the statement and realizing there are going to be consequences and feeling fine with those consequences and standing behind your values as a business. I'm very, very passionate about this. This is, this is pretty key to what um, we do in a lot of different ways and it's hard. And as a founder, you know, when you're really busy and you're in all of these ops meetings and data meetings and product meetings and all these things, and then, um, you know, these issues can sort of come up. And if you haven't put that thought into it about who you are, what you stand for, what you're willing to tolerate, how you're going to react to things, like things can really catch you by surprise. So it's, in my opinion, one of those topics that's worth, even though we're all, you know, busy and just trying to build companies, putting thought into and caring about it. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be one of the absolute most important things that you can do. And people can also sniff out if what your message or how you react to something or who you empower within your organization or whatever that might look like, you know, they know if that's authentic or not. And it, it is, there's a direct relationship between your community caring about you, believing in you, or, you know, thinking you're just putting words out there. Hey, so since you said you feel very passionate about it, like, can you maybe provide a next level of detail? Like, do you, or does the company speak out on most of the societal topics that come up? Do you not do that at all? Does it, do you only do it when it sort of covers health and beauty? How do you really think about it? Like day to day that might be instructive for folks. Yeah. I mean, you know, and this is one of those things that every company has to define for themselves. And there are some companies that really want to stay out of it. There are some companies that are um, partisan and or political and stand behind issues in the beauty industry in particular, um, both social justice and racial justice. And um, a lot of the topics that have come up over the past year are particularly important because we're creating products and experiences that tie into all of those topics. And it is impossible to separate, you know, to say, hey, we're a beauty brand or in our cases, it's beauty services. It's impossible to separate what we do from those issues. Um, And it also depends on the founder, right? Like my personal views are that I absolutely support these uh, social justice movements. There is no if, and, or, but about it, there's no gray area. And we have made statements, we've made donations, we've talked about it internally. We have, um, always tried to create an environment within my company where that is seen and heard and respected 
um, and reflected amongst our team. I'm not saying we're um, so happy with where we are today. There's always uh, room to do better, but that is something that I talk about. And I've shared both internally and externally that if there are people that do not support our stance on those issues, that I'm 100% fine in losing customers and losing employees and losing out on investment opportunities, whatever that is, because that is what we stand for. Um, and that's just our take on it, right? And it's, you know, people can well, have their different opinions on it, but it's, it it's up to every clear. business to decide. Right. But it helps that you're clear. And so it's, uh, it, you know, people can opt in or out pretty clearly. We have a question. Uh, Dr. Rose, thanks for joining us up on stage. Please ask your question. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for creating this awesome space. So I'm coming from the mental health profession to owning my own business. And in the mental health profession, people sought me out for help. So it's very different owning your own business. Um, we recently got a grant from American Express as an innovator grant. Um, and we market all natural crystallized instant teas. So what we decided to do with that um, grant is to give away free tea to the community. Once again, we're trying to build community. And we have offered um, free tea. We have some ambassadors that are also offering free tea. So um, as a part of that, the ambassadors are getting free tea for a year. Um, I, we still, we're still not having the impact that I thought we would have at this juncture. And maybe because it's not really my area of expertise, maybe I'm coming in naive, but um, you know, it's natural tea that has all these great benefits in this environment of COVID where um, our flagship product is ginger rolled in honey, which of course is great for the immune system and um, you know, kind of just building up your, your resistance. So, so Dr. Rose, if I'm hearing you correctly, your question is like, you seem to have, you have product market fit, you have a great product and the community isn't really doing for you what you were expecting to do. Who wants to take that one? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Camille, do you want to go? No, 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 please go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it, it is, while it is, I would say, you know, a, a really good strategy to start with gifting. I, I do think it starts with an understanding again of, you know, where your customers are at, vetting the right people. And, you know, I mean, I think at, at the beginning, a lot of times it does help to find um, people that are more influential to talk about you, um, even if it's for gifting them free products. And a lot of times what you can do is you can get um, people with pretty big followings, like thousands of followers, tens of thousands of followers, if they can resonate with your brand, with your values, the the, the health and, you know, wellness benefit that, that they're trying to build, uh, you know, you're trying to build with them. Um, and especially if you're a startup and you're kind of transparent with that message, a lot of times you can get those types of people to post for free. Um, so a lot of times what we recommend is we is, is basically to start small and be just really open and transparent and honest about your brand and reaching out to people that are actually relatively big that probably would normally charge money to like a brand that is, you know, bigger and more established um, and trying to uh, trying to get some awareness that way. I think it is difficult to just reach out to obviously, you know, everyday people and, and, and get the, that level of scale given it is pretty manual to, 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 yeah. to, to kind of kickstart a lot of these programs. Hey, um, little detour. Uh, I don't know, Paul, if you have a question, but I want to say hi. Paul is building an awesome community that we're all on called Clubhouse. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, well, thanks for coming up. Um, 
we are talking about how to build um, communities around products and how to help grow that. Like you are building a community and this community is very, very diverse. has lots of different opinions. How are you thinking about managing the community? Or are you basically saying like anything goes? Uh, what's what's the deal at Clubhouse? I haven't thought about it much. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a question I mean, at all. I know. I, we've never talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, it's... It's, uh, I, I'm literally on a zoom talking about it right now. Cause it's like, it's, it's everything, right. It's, um, so, so we think about, we, we thought about from the early days, like the very early days it was how do you build the right seed of the community? And to do that, we just, we enlisted the help of the, we, we started by getting a group of people who knew each other, enjoyed hanging out with each other, had, um, you know, enough shared contacts and interests that they would enjoy hanging out. And that was a lot of like brute force. And then from there, we enlisted the help of the community and we said, help us, uh, you know, we really want a diverse and inclusive and welcoming community. So we, we literally went out to people and like, help us, um, help us, uh, you know, invite more women, invite more underrepresented minor- minorities, invite people from other parts of the, the country, of other parts of the world, people with different backgrounds and, and the people just, everyone just delivered in spades. And, and when you have a model that grows through invites, that, that just naturally expands outward. But I think as you grow, um, I mean, there's so much to manage, right? I mean, the community changes. You go from, you have to make this transition from being a single community of beta testers into a global network of many different communities, right? And, and, and for us, you have, you have people using it for different reasons, everything from, from private conversations with two or three people to, to community conversations that are really participatory and, and to, all the way up to like shows where people want to use it for broadcast and they don't want it to be participatory. And, and, um, I honestly, I, I will stop now cause I could talk about it for hours, but it's the most important thing you can possibly get right. And it is incredibly complex and ever evolving. Yep. You have the, the community management topic of all times on your hands. Um, It'll be great, I'm sure. Yeah, one one last thing, like one amazing thing about our product is just that, I mean, it is a coincidence of the nature of the product that it's live group audio. I mean, I've never had a product that I work on where you can talk with people in real time while they're using the product, right? I mean, that's that's crazy. You just get so much feedback that that you can you can iterate really quickly and, and learn a lot. Yeah, I always wonder why you hang up uh, I mean, I don't wonder, but like you are in a lot of clubhouse conversations, but to you, it's basically one giant focus group, right? It informs the product it's, and, and yeah, the yeah, urgency it's, of all it's the It's really, really helpful. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump back to the audience because I'm literally on a Zoom right now, but <laughs> thank you so much for having me up, Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Tina, do we have... Go yeah. Ahead. Should we get... Um, Hill, do you want to ask a question? I just brought you up on stage. Hi. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me up here. Um, I just really like your insights and, and what you guys had to say. And um, just to follow up with, with what Paul had to say, I think I think what he's created with Clubhouse and, and all the community that's, you know, that's come up with so many different people, the diversity, it's, it's truly amazing. Um, you know, so I really appreciate it. And, and supporting diverse people is the number one way to make this um app a success and i hope that we can continue to do so so um that's why i have that little uh picture there so thank you guys for for having me up here i really appreciate it
No worries. I'm sad that Paul is gone, but just having worked with him for a while now, that is a key, key priority. So thanks for noticing. And yes, um, they're working hard on keeping it that way. Ian, did you have a question? Yeah, it's great to be here, everyone. So I was intrigued by what Melody mentioned about the importance of values and, you know, tying that to the community and essentially society. So I was curious, I'm sure many of you have heard about what happened recently right. with Basecamp announcing no social issue related areas, no politics in the company as far as external politics. And I'm just curious about all of your thoughts about that because they've got quite a backlash for it. And do you think taking a stance of not having any kind of commentary on, you know, what's going on in society is a safe bet or a damaging one? I know Margaret has a lot of thoughts on this one. I do. I'm the unpopular one, I think, uh, in this uh, group and in many groups. I actually think it is the right call, the right thing to do. That does not mean a company shouldn't care about these topics um, at all. So at our firm, we have lots of conversations around these topics internally. I just think that um, the constant statement um, is is a hard thing to do because one is um, companies tend to not have solutions. And the minute you sort of make the statement, you are asked to have a solution and these societal ails, I mean, I'm an immigrant and I've been here for a long time now and I've not yet seen the plan. So that just becomes a hard challenge. And then I think when you are a very large company, you also, it's, it's as a CEO, you have an interesting conundrum. It's like, was this your opinion? Is this the company opinion? How could you possibly speak for 40,000 employees, for example? And I know that um, made, made me come across as heartless, but I have seen many, many companies uh, kind of devolve culturally because um, the people internally disagree and have their feelings hurt and whatnot, and they are at some point unable to come together around the common cause of building the company. So that's the conundrum. Now, I totally appreciate Melody's as the opposite point of view, which is like, it's my company and here are my values and I'm totally okay with people not working here or people not using the product. But it's a, it's a, it's a really big decision and I think people get very fast into the slippery slope of like, oh yeah, that statement makes total sense. And then all of a sudden you're speaking out on everything. And if you look at the New York Times text section, Andrew Ross talking, who I love, but like the every other day, the story about what CEOs have said about topic Y or Z. End of rant. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I definitely think it's it's it is difficult. Um, so I think it's kind of like a personal choice to 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 Melody's point, both personal choice on the founding team as well as you know kind of like a cultural choice of the kind of culture that you want to build. And I, I, I definitely see the point of I think as you become bigger and bigger, and it's harder to kind of scale out of that subjective opinion, and the the goalposts keep moving. I think in our case, we have been pretty vocal about uh, social justice. And I think um, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, so much of our company is intertwined with the creator community and the like hundreds of thousands of people that interact with our platform um, in that. And I think it's from a business, I think from a business standpoint, I don't think it, it's viable for us to kind of take a neutral opinion there um, just because it is, I think, 
inclusive of Melody's case in the beauty community, whether it's the beauty community or any of these different kind of like sub communities of uh, you know social media in the in the creator economy. Um, I, I think from a practical standpoint, for us, it's not viable to do that. And also from a personal standpoint, I mean, I, I think we are small enough where I do think that kind of we can put our own personal kind of opinions on here and say, look, if I'm running a company, like I, you know, I want it to stand for, you know, this. And the one thing I'll say, just because this is a this is a brand community's uh, clubhouse, is that one cool thing about having our own community of brands and our own kind of community at Aspire IQ is that we are trying to kind of co-author you know, solutions and tactics that we can do as a group of brands. Um, and so that's like one other kind of cool thing to do, you know, if, if you can actually kind of find like-minded people in the community is, you know, how, how can you kind of like tailor solutions that aren't just from your company, but a group of companies as well. Great. Uh, Chauncey, did you have a question you want to share with us? Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to speak to you guys tonight. Um, you know, we have, we've been, you see this PTR, a bunch of people in the, in the audience, uh, Clubhouse Respect Black Voices. And part of the community is, are the black voices in this community. A lot of the flavor, a lot of the, the fun things from the NYC girls taking something from somebody else and they, they got uh, rewarded for it too. Uh, you know, when George Floyd, I didn't see a lot of the community managers in those rooms, but when Asian hate happened, everybody was in those rooms. And, you know, uh, when it, when it, when it, when, uh, Texas happened, everybody's in support of that. I just think that when you build a community, you really need to be a part of the community and go into rooms that you might feel uncomfortable with sometimes. You don't have to go up on stage, but to sit there and listen and just pay attention. A lot of times I go in rooms that I have no idea I, I can't speak on. And, you know, I know uh, Paul and Rohan are the founders, but I never see them in rooms that I go to. I never see them in, you know, things that I care about. And so when you talk about community, it's really important that if you're going to run stuff, I worked for Jimmy Iovine for 25 years. I've worked for some amazing people. And, you know, you're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to have your disagreements. But here's the beauty of life. You have to, in these apps, in this situation, in this time and day, we need to really embrace the creators here on Clubhouse in the Black community. We feel jaded. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not even a creator. I'm more of a just trying to help all these amazing people that I see. I see a rundown. I see a Glenn Lundy. I see a bunch of dope Black people doing stuff, and I never hear about them getting love. I never hear about them them just just feeling amazing. So I hope one day that we can do a town hall with some dope Black people like myself and a couple people, uh, and we could really talk about community because we don't really feel a part of the community. We're on this app. We're not getting paid for it. We're on this app because we actually enjoy it. Everything you're saying technically we like, and we a bunch of stuff we don't, but we're here because we found a community, but we, our community don't feel like we're getting the same love as other communities. I'm speaking for myself and some people that might feel the same, but I can, always, I can only speak for Chauncey Bell. So I just want to know what can we, this, this crew do better to help talk to our community. So, Chauncey, so this Chauncey and I've done speaking. So Chauncey, I'll go on the record. I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying what you just said, but I'll go on the record real quick. I was on this app last summer when George Floyd happened. And so I just want to go on the record and say that Paul and Rohan was very supportive. And I was in a lot of those rooms because I started them back then, back before we even had room titles, where there was a lot of dialogue going on around um, 
George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, and um, all of the founders were in those rooms um, for hours on end back in back in those days. And this was last summer and spring, and I was in those rooms. And as a matter of fact, there were a lot of WhatsApp groups and calls um, behind the scenes um, to talk about how to support um, the the early members. Um, to have those conversations. And we had some very difficult conversations where there was a lot of respect um, and allyship that went on um, back then. And so I just want to go on the record and set the record straight and just advocate for what actually happened that I saw with my own eyes. Um, so I just want to say that. And yeah, um, yeah. I also yeah, want to say... Off, can, I, can I just one second? Can I, can I finish? A, my, can I, I just yeah, want to quickly yeah, finish and then we'll get back yeah. to you. It was just yep, a smaller so. community then. It was a smaller community then too. Yeah, well, it was around when it actually happened. So it's important to to note that uh, no matter what the size of the community was, you know, this was the response immediately to the events that were happening as they were happening. And, and um, they didn't run and hide. They showed up. And so that's important to notate that. And then it's also important to say that, you know, not only me, but several of the other early black users were given tons and tons of invites um, to get people on the platform. And during that time, the complaint was that the platform was not diverse and there was not being given enough invites to people of color. And um, that, that, was, that was not true at the time when it was said, and it was remedied even further at the time. So I just wanted to go on the record and make sure I said that straight. But I really appreciate what you had to say here, Chauncey. And, and obviously, I'm going to remain a part uh, of the community. I want you to reach out to me, DM me, please, because, you know, I want to make sure that we create a dialogue as much as possible. So please DM me, brother. And I will. I appreciate you pointing that out. I just think as community grows, like anything else, you have to expand with the community as well. So, you know, they do have uh, different people like yourself that come in the room. I, I don't know you, Nate. i never seen you in any of the rooms I'm in. So I'm so happy that we spoke right now so I can reach out to you. But I, I would love some of my white brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters to come in and, and be a part of our community too and talk and listen. So you know, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. So thank you thank for that. You. I appreciate you. Appreciate thank you, Chauncey. Let, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. And, and Chauncey, I'm following you. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and find you on the clubhouse. So thank you. It's, it's a totally valid point. I think we have one more question, right, Tina? Yeah. Jessica, yes. did you have a question for us? Yes. Hi everyone. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yep. Okay. Awesome. One thing that I'm struggling with, with a community that I manage for work is that a lot of our individuals using our platform are very happy. They leave really great testimonials, really great feedback. However, there's been resistance to sharing their experience with our tool in um, customer profiles and as far as like being ambassadors. And one of the reasons that we've discovered from our conversations with them is that they don't want their competitors to find out they're using our product in case their competitors use us as well. So that is the highest form of compliment. Sorry, I'll let you finish, but that is pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I love that, but also I don't love it because I would really love to nurture a community, to have it become very organic and supportive and a real wonderful resource as well as, you know, some way to build more activity on our platform and service. So do you guys have any advice for how to do that? That is a tough one. I, I would love to ask you a question around what it is that you're asking them to do. Like what types of activities do you offer as part of the experience? Absolutely. So our platform connects fashion brands and designers to Italian manufacturers. And basically we found out they don't want their competitors to know that, you know, I found this wonderful manufacturer. They're really easy to work with. They have high quality materials, et cetera. 
So we'd really love, ideally, to spotlight a couple of the wonderful fashion brands that are doing so well, that we work with, maybe tell their story on our blog, share them on social media, brag about the fact that they're using our platform to create these wonderful products, but they don't necessarily want to claim affiliation with our service. That is a tough one. I have one idea that is going to be minor, and then I'd love to hear maybe from other panelists, but would it be possible for them to create stories on their own platforms, whether that's social media or their blog or something along those lines, where they're saying, like, look at what we've been able to enable, and then it's like, ask us what our secret is, or uh, something along those lines where they're generating curiosity in a way that maybe gives you a smaller forum. I would actually love that. And I think we've even reached out and offered to create content that maybe they could put their own spin on and share it in their own way. And there hasn't really been any bites for it. It's really interesting because it's like you, your product is a trade secret and you, you know, those that use it and get benefit from it don't want to tell their competitor. I think it's really interesting. I think about Maybe a correlation to you guys uh, on the consumer side is something like Expedia, um, where isn't that the travel product where like you you say what you're willing to pay and then after you accept, you see the hotel that's willing to offer that, but the hotels oh, don't want to say, like, yeah, you know what I mean. And so I wonder if you could market yourself in a different way. Um, which is talking about your utility and talking about how you're the best kept secret in the fashion world. And so it's not as much community driven, but you sort of take that angle that is really true to you and you build campaigns around it and you build content around it um, as something that you try instead. That's just an idea. I love that. That's really cool. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I don't know if it solves it either, but I think the one suggestion I had is, is something similar to what we have, actually, is we have kind of a brand community that has both customers and just people in the industry. And it's it's a closed Slack group. It's invite only, and it's not kind of something that's highly publicized across, you know, public forums and things like that. So I think that the, the opinions getting shared are a lot more probably open and, you know, less, uh, you know, less scrutinized and potentially just easier for people to digest and, and, and share. So... That might be another idea is that it's not something that's like completely public, but it's something that's kind of a closed group that can still kind of fuel your growth in, in a way that's at some point in the pipeline. That's a great point, Eric. Just make the, commu the, the community private. I mean, just. This is non-trivial. But um, I think that's a great now note to end on because it's another good idea. And uh, we are over time, so I don't want to wear out our welcome with both the audience and with our fabulous guests. Um, Melody, Camille, and Eric, uh, you are fantastic. Tina and Daz are always my buddies. Nate, Andrew, and Jessica from the audience, thank you so very much. I always learn when I have these conversations, so um, we're going to get back to it next week. I really, really appreciate everyone's participation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us, Margie. Thanks for the invite. This was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody, hey, Chauncey, feel safe I just with the Red Sea. Bye.